Welcome to a public lecture podcast from the University of Bath. In this lecture, David Rogers talks about how entrepreneurs use innovation and creativity to survive and thrive in hard times. I had a brilliant idea on. Well, sorry, not brilliant. I always say that. Another idea on the way here this evening.、Um, I thought somebody might like to go into the business of creating toxic soups、um, to mop up all this、uh, toxic debt. But of course, then I realised that entrepreneurs don't have toxic debt because they can't get any bank loans. <clears throat> But I thought Lynette, this might be an idea for you in your、uh, new venture to start making、uh, toxic suits. <clears throat> That's as funny as it gets, by the way. <laughs> and if you're going to throw shoes, please throw the shoes in pairs and it's size nine. Thank you very much. I hesitate to use the words "new paradigm" to describe what is emerging from the wreckage of the credit crunch, but the model of business that exists in the mind of the entrepreneur is changing radically. The holy cows are being converted into corned beef. Banks have lost their credibility with business owners. The myth has disappeared that banks are institutions to help develop your business. Another myth is that things will get back to normal. Galbraith, the economist, described wealth creation as a process where one dollar is multiplied along a chain of lenders and borrowers. Presumably, the chain is now in reverse. Bogus certainty is greatly preferred to bona fide uncertainty. We are in danger of building a new paradigm of business and entrepreneurism. Excuse me, a suspect. As the last one, bending the evidence to the purpose as we go. Only a few chief executives and entrepreneurs will shake off their shackles to spot and exploit new opportunities in the downturn. Belloc said, "Oh, let us never doubt what nobody is sure about. Risk means opportunity." It is so important that entrepreneurs break through fear of short-term failure. Dick Stewart of Strategy Insight famously said, "Cash is more important than your mother." I'll try harder, guys. <laughs> Remember that all recessions look the same at the start. It's the recovery that actually shapes a recession. I hope nobody needs reminding of this stuff: GDP on the fall, new investments by venture capitalists coming down, this this going out rate of last year now 10, 15 0 down already. About one in 150 companies failed,、uh, went into liquidation last year, 25 0 up on 2007. And in addition to that, there was seven or eight thousand corporate insolvencies. It is tough out there. One of Silicon Valley's most revered venture capitalists, Sequoia Capital, who was the early sponsor of Google, has recently warned of the investment tough times. They opened their conference last week not with a toxic suit, but with a picture of the tombstone inscribed "R.I.P. Good Times." Benchmark Capital, another big player, quoted in a recent presentation. It might take a long time 
before we see the glory days again. But it's not all over. Because of the nature of the current downturn, many investors are turning to angel groups where they can feel and touch the ideas looking for funding. There has been a dramatic upsurge in the attendance of these groups in recent weeks. My group, iGabriel, is no exception. Bill Morrow, co-founder of Angels Den, an innovative network linking entrepreneurs with private investors, reports a significant growth in business. A comment heard more and more frequently is, I'd rather lose £120,000 myself backing an entrepreneur with an idea than through a so-called wealth manager. I prefer cradle to grave, inheritance tax to IHT, a journey that starts for many and ends with a few. We all have business ideas, many generated in the pub, the club, the restaurant, or even the bathroom. It is said 100,000 business ideas generate 1,000 inventions or plans that result in 20 innovations that result in one person paying inheritance tax, or at least not losing too much. It's a long, difficult journey from idea to success. When people think about innovation, they tend to think about new services and products, bright, shiny, cool, high-tech ideas. They are presented all the time coming from Silicon Valley in California, or at least from somewhere outside the UK. But now they are less sure of the heritage, only knowing it's not from the UK. They assume that it takes millions of dollars and thousands of engineers to make it to the marketplace. An important point for tonight, one of the two or three, I hope, takeaways, is that I would like you to think differently about innovation. Less around conventional thinking, but more around new ways to capture ideas, vet them, and bring them to the market. In this climate particularly, it is about tapping the creativity of customers, employees, and even competitors. <coughs> Innovation is about developing systems for creative working. This seems to me the new how of innovation, particularly in this current climate. Great innovations are often those that appeared flawed. I first became aware of eBay in the late 90s when I was doing my startup in Silicon Valley. I just couldn't understand why people would want to send money to complete strangers they had found on the internet. It simply seemed like a hell full of abuse and fraud. I thought the same about Wikipedia. In my days, it was just getting going and known as the, its original name was the Portland, Portland Repository or something. I simply didn't get it. Surely with the ability of anyone to edit a page, then any crackpot, crackpot could simply delete the whole file. Obvious, I thought. I was, of course, completely and totally wrong in both cases. It therefore seems to me that seemingly impossible is practically a requirement 
for a truly great innovation. If something seems possible, that's probably because someone is doing it already. Real innovation is when someone tries and finds an idea to make an idea work. For eBay, from the start, they developed a process to deal with fraud. Today, it's their major occupation. Go help fix that, and you'll have a winning business overnight. The problem with Wikis was more easily solved. Wikis keeps a copy of every file version, so no problem if the bad guy wipes out the data. Also, both eBay and Wiki display what I call a strong network effect, something that is immensely important for really important web-based, successful web-based ventures. The more people are there, the more people will want to be there. Remember, it took the telephone network effect 40 to 50 years to get established. The combination of seems impossible and the network effect is about as close as you can get to the magic formula, to the pixie dust, for incredible sustainable success for a web venture. Google displays the same traits. It seemed impossible. There are many, lots of good search engines when Google got going, but they lacked the real network effect. When it became cool to Google, the inheritance tax problem kicked in. More of Google later. Look at these examples. Fraser Doherty, the founder of Super Jam. Young guy, always made jam with his grandma during the summer holiday. When he was 17, he did some research and found that the sales of jam had continued to fall in the last 20 years because of the old-fashioned and unhealthy image. There has been no innovation in jam for 30 or 40 years. So he looked into making a healthy jam with no additives and was sweetened only with the fruit. He found a factory he could hire for a few days each month, and he launched a super jam range. This year, he will sell half a million jars of super jam. The proper food company, the proper Cornish food company, another great example, Phil Ugandi, the, the founder. Competition had driven out uh, decent quality Cornish pasties. Price and quality had completely plummeted. He launched the proper Cornish food company. His pasties cost 50 to 100% more than his competitors. He uses cut steak, not minced beef, with the meat carefully layered on top of the vegetables. The pastry is rough puff, not short crust, and is hand crimped rather than machine sealed. He's now making 50,000 pasties a day. Talk to you a little bit about Starbucks. This is something I've been... We, we all know the demise of Starbucks. We know the story, the Seattle Coffee Company, all this. But I've, I just want to share a, another slant on it that I've been thinking about. And um, we won't have time today, but at some point would would like to actually talk it through. 
I don't know if you read, but Starbucks, um, I don't know if it's announced in Europe, but recently, certainly in the States, they announced that they're going to launch a brand of instant coffee called VIA, V-I-A. And I wonder how this can help them out of their demise. Remember, they've just closed a 1,000 outlets and I think announced another 300 closures. It will be sold through discount retailers in supermarkets. Um, and remember, over 80% of instant coffee is sold through supermarkets. A huge market, $20 billion a year. And it will also be sold through the Starbucks outlets. So what is this all about? Starbucks is no longer a classic chain of espresso bars. It doesn't even have espresso cups anymore. Just paper crinkly stuff. Starbucks product is now typically a concoction of milk and syrup, maybe coffee, and other fashionable ingredients. The challenge for Starbucks is to keep its identity as a coffee shop letting its customers feel more virtuous than if the place was called the fat dairy tub, despite the stuff they are drinking. This may make the shift to instant coffee easier. Certainly Starbucks thinks so. The chain will have to serve a different function in the bust economy. As as Orwell said, when you're unemployed, harassed and miserable, you don't want to eat dull, wholesome, healthy food. If we believe that, then the taste for the kind of sweet drinks that Starbucks now sells is unlikely to wane any time soon, and Via may have a chance. Domino pizza. Rolling in dough. Yeah, they're not getting any better, are they now? <laughs> I'll stick to business. It accounts for one in six home deliveries in the UK and one in three pizza deliveries. The recession encouraging cost-conscious Britons to stay at home and order takeaways rather than eat out will do little to hamper momentum. The entrepreneurial spirit remains evident at the heart of the domino culture and goes some way to explain its success. It was the first to take orders via the internet. It was the first to use conveyor belt ovens. It even created a spoodle, a cross between a ladle and a spoon, for moving around the dough. They keep on innovating because of the nature of their target audience. You can't sit back in today's world with a phone-based business when everyone is ordering online. The connection between online and innovation is key to our times. Facebook, launched in the summer of uh, 2007 in London, by the autumn, one in six Londoners had posted a profile. The web is no longer for geeks. It is everyone, it is for everyone, and as a result, our lives have changed irrevocably. Harkin says in Siberia, we can no longer opt out. One single factor changed the face of the internet, and that was broadband. Once the internet was switched on all the time, everyone started becoming intimate with it. The web is now the platform on which we live our lives. 
Computing is no longer the history of machine going through its life stages, from smart calculator through word processing to email and onwards. Almost a parallel activity to the real world. The internet is no longer the history of machines. It is the story of a culture, a culture that is five years old. Many entrepreneurs have succeeded in capturing this cultural change. Many have failed. Think about this. Think about the changes. Think about the opportunities. Think about this new world. Even Google can get it wrong. They've had a number of turkeys. Not everything turns to gold in good times or bad. Orkut, their social networking site, started in 2004. It's done nothing. They have a, uh, a platform called Knoll, uh, K-N-O-L-L, an answer to Wikipedia. It looks like bombing also. Yet, inventing the most efficient way of pages on the internet and then linking that to online advertising is arguably one of the greatest commercial feats of modern times. This tremendous success of Google on the one hand and these miserable failures look like miserable failures on the other. The battleground now for Google is about internet advertising on mobile phones. Will they make the leap? There are about 1.2 billion mobile uh, internet users, but there are about 3 billion mobile phones in existence around the world. Then there's Twitter, a curious social networking site based on mutual stalking. Users send mini-broadcasters tweets about what they are doing and then they read the tweets of others. Obama has 300,000 followers. Do you know there are more users on Facebook and Twitter than email websites? Nielsen Online Research in December 2008, the end of last year, published these stats. 242 million unique visitors to member social communities and 236 million to email sites around the world. Just incredible statistics. In the UK, there's 26 million visitors to sites like Facebook, Twitter, MySpace, etc. Innovation is tough. However, in a web 2.0 world, innovation is still an assault course. These are two companies, two people, two innovators who went through that assault course and successfully came out the other end. James Dyson, you know, he lives locally, fought a long battle with Hoover over patents and finally eventually won such that he could then bring his manufacturing back initially to the UK, went back overseas and has gone from strength to strength. Can you imagine that the Dyson cleaner is the market leader in Japan? Can you imagine the Dyson cleaner is the market leader in the United States? I mean, just a great story. The workbench, the workmate, <clears throat> a, a story that I was involved with, 
the inventor of the workmate, a guy called Ron Hickman, a very talented engineer who had worked in the motor trade. He was the designer of the uh, Lotus Elan and um, very talented. And one day was doing some decoration at home, sawing a piece of wood, and put the piece of wood on a chair, sawed through the wood, sawed through the chair. And it was his wife's auntie's favorite chair. So uh, he spent the rest of the weekend uh, uh, designing a workbench and um, went on from there and showed the workbench to friends. This is a long story, by the way. So it's, it's a true story. It's a fascinating story. Um, and eventually decided to leave Lotus and that he would manufacture uh, the workmates and sell them, <clears throat> which he did successfully for the first year, but found that he couldn't keep up with demand. So we went along to companies like Black & Decker, Stanley Tools, and other companies. There weren't any uh, B&Qs and those sort of operations around at that time. And um, both, B&, both Black & Decker and uh, Stanley Tools said, no, thank you. And he came back about a year and a half later. I was sitting in Black & Decker as uh, head of new products, and I met with Ron, and I was absolutely knocked out about uh, his proposition, and I was knocked out uh, uh, with him as a person. And we did the deal. Ron get, got 50p for every uh, workmate that Black & Decker made. And uh, he gave over the patents to, uh, to Black & Decker. And uh, 30 million workmates later, um, Ron is no longer living in uh, Hertfordshire, but uh, in some tax haven worrying about IHT. <laughs> <clears throat> so even in the most extreme adverse conditions, the entrepreneur must display unwavering determination. With interest rates at rock bottom, where are investors going to have to look for somewhere to get a return? Hopefully some of them new ventures. Businesses they can touch and feel, people they can meet and like, opportunities they can understand and identify with. No toxicity here. No toxic debts, but new opportunities powered by passionate entrepreneurs. Depressions have happened before. In, in the Great Depression, stock prices fell 12% in the first year, 29% in the second, and 45% in the third, and 12% uh, the next year. The market didn't actually get back from 1929 through to 1949, including the war, of course, 20 years after the catastrophe. Some of the major world inventions were actually made and launched during this period. In turbulent times, can you see the opportunity? Many, opportunity, many entrepreneurs do. To come out on top of the recession, you have to look for opportunity in a new way. Are you seeing disintegrating markets as an opportunity to buy into or sell into? Can you see beyond the turbulence to the next growth opportunity? Entrepreneurs do. Entrepreneurs that come through in these times of change are likely to be those moving quickly, decisively and proactively. Even the experts get it wrong. The famous dragons. This was the experience of Very PC. Do, do you know the company Very PC? David might. Do you, David? 
No, it's, it's, uh, it's quite interesting. It it's, um, started a couple of years ago, specializes in uh, energy-efficient computers, a uh, UK company. Today it employs 80 people in a new factory making computers in the UK, and it made a profit of a million last year on a turnover of three and a half million. Great story. This is quite funny. In 1899, Charles Duell, commissioner of the US Patent Office, proposed to save money by closing down his department on the basis there couldn't be anything left to invent. Whether good times or bad times, business judgment can be flawed. Entrepreneurs, established companies of all sizes, well-known, big names, small companies, and even financial advisors can get it wrong. Entrepreneurs nearly always never get it quite right. Their business development route is typically different from the original plan. Not just about their optimism for growth, not just a, a shift to the right on the spreadsheet, but the slight or large chain, change from the plan they eventually choose to follow. It's actually that tuning, frankly, that I'm um, always very interested in with, with young companies. This crystallization, clarification of where do we play. This flexibility and refocus is, of course, fundamental in a downturn. This innate agility potentially leaves NUCO much stronger. There are around 4 million small businesses in the UK, but there are as many as 80 million people who dream of having their own business. So says Mike Southern in the Small Business magazine. There can be times when it's difficult to see ahead. Intense adverse condition are a test of courage, not to mention conviction. It is easy to become disorientated in the teeth of the storm, and entrepreneurs could be forgiven for doubting their strategies and methods, even losing their nerve. But business creators are made of sterner stuff, and experience has taught them that their instincts can be trusted. Hence, they press on, confident that they are moving in the right direction and that in time, their determination will be rewarded. One's attitude is vital, hopeful. Train the mind to be positive. Martin, Dr. Martin Seligman wrote, the default motion of our tongue is to find the cavity, not a really nice tooth. But optimism is contagious. Two or three weeks ago, the British Medical Journal reported that the best happiness generator is having a friend nearby. Entrepreneurs can be unrealistic. The more you think success is possible, the more you will strive for it. The more you will lead the dice, turn the dice in your favor there should always be an opportunity for creativity to come through. So what does it take? Well, luck and 10,000 hours of practice. Luck plays a big part in life as it does in business. How many of you are familiar with the book The Outliers? 
good. They contend, which I agree, with that both the Beatles and Bill Gates owe a large part of their success to luck. However, they go on to say that luck was heavily supported with immense talent and 10,000 hours of practice. So the Beatles, for three years, this is 19, whenever it was, 60s, played for 12 to 15 hours a day, seven days a week in nightclubs in Hamburg. There was probably no band better rehearsed than the Beatles when they arrived in the United States in 1963. A lot of talent. They had the luck to get to Hamburg. And then they sweated their 10,000 hours. Bill Gates, the same. From 13 years of age, he was programming. By luck, his parents got him into somewhere where he could do some programming and and something else and something else during school holidays. By the time he was 18, he'd done 10,000 hours of programming, probably more than anybody else in the United States. Add that luck to that talent and that apprenticeship, and we see the success that it delivers. So this book, Outliers, goes on to, to develop this concept. It's quite an interesting book. You can manage your luck. And if you are nowhere near the goal when you get the ball, it's unlikely you'll score. Luck is not a particular feature of upturn or downturn, nor is it competence or 10,000 hours of practice. The key ingredients for success are equally as critical as the state of the economic climate. <clears throat> I hope this next point is another, another interesting point. <clears throat> Western society has been an amalgamation of the old Roman Empire with success, wealth, individual glory, and the Judeo-Christian world with its emphasis on charity, <clears throat> serenity, and love. The entrepreneur, in my mind sits at the crossroads of these philosophies. A new thinking on how to do business. Recession will prompt radical changes in the rules and roles of business. How companies respond will determine their future, Jacobides wrote recently. Why did we miss the demise we are now facing? Jacobides asserts we fail to appreciate the changes in industry architecture. The rules and roles that govern how participants do business. Malcolm Lewis, who is here with us tonight, a visiting professor from um, that other university, um, talks a lot about this stuff. The current situation could be a wake-up call, showing us the availability, new opportunities by closely studying your industry architecture. Industry architecture consists of the roles played by companies in a sector and the rules, the standards, the conventions that connect them. It defines the way in which money is made, who does what, strategic choice, which in turn determines who takes what, revenue, profits, market share. 
Many business sectors have changed dramatically, reducing leaders to laggards and turning newcomers into giants. You're familiar with these. In the early days of computing, the industry unbundled, breaking up its vertical integration. Apple and IBM were too integrated and nearly lost the battle for personal computers, allowing new unknown companies to capture the key parts of the market. Microsoft, in contrast, used shrewd agreements to maintain its position as a bottleneck, keeping hold of the key parts of the computer value-added process. Companies like Microsoft do not just work in a sector, they work on it, shaping the sector to ensure the future industry architecture will fit their capability. IBM and Apple have now managed to overcome their previous failures by deep understanding of their sector's architecture. The new winners will be the companies that manage to adapt, changing the way they make money in a new architecture. In every industry, success flows from the ability to adapt industry architecture and your role within it, no more than at the moment. The 1970s downturn was largely about reorganizing supply chains. The 1990s recession spurred the growth of outsourcing, and the IT slump at the start of this decade ushered in a new type of networked organization and flexible workers. Crisis means new industry architectures. It means new opportunities for those who can see and meet the challenges, not like the typical reaction where a downturn only means lower output layoffs and retrenchment. Customers' needs are different in a downturn. There is a shift away from aspirational to thrift and value. Adapting to a new reality, changing the way you do business, or figuring out the shape of your industry's new architecture isn't easy. First, you need to work out how you can add value in the new environment. This requires realigning what the company does to, to match emerging needs. You have to decide how to reposition the company in this sector. You need to plan for the worst while plotting your course to emerge stronger from the difficult period. Look particularly at the opportunity to occupy the niches that other companies are being forced to leave. This is one of the reasons why some young companies grow in leaps and bounds in downturns and why established leaders are particularly vulnerable. It's like judo as opposed to boxing. You use your rival's weight to take advantage. Great care is needed to avoid attacking only the easy-to-cut bits of the organization. This really can be throwing out the baby with the bathwater. Companies need to recognize that changing customers and markets require a wholesale rethink of their value proposition business model, and even financial structure. Focusing on the basic questions of how value is added can help companies save themselves from the spiral of cost-cutting and layoffs. Finding a way to refocus on value could be just the opportunity you need to start a new venture. Entrepreneurs that have the courage to do so are able to identify which part of the industry architectures are viable and which are not taking the crisis as an opportunity to take a strategic look at the opportunities and their future. 
Business should not assume that the corporate landscape in 2008 is going to be the same in 2018. There will be new companies, new sectors driven by a generational change of customer demand. Quite simply, there will be no return to the modus operandi. The business wheel is about to be reinvented as the cycle prepares to change. What is for sure is that opportunities for growth will present themselves to those businesses, those entrepreneurs, suitably prepared and sufficiently alive. Thank you, you're so sweet. Have another cigar. In the... um, Another book, the recently published Market Rebels. Have we seen Market Rebels? Okay, good read. Hey, Griever Rowe. Introduces the concept of hot causes and cool mobilization around the topic of innovation. Hot causes intensify emotions and trigger new beliefs. Cool mobilization also evokes emotion, but it does so by engaging participants a new collective experience that transforms belief. Together, they power collective action, and this is the stopping force or driving force of new markets and new opportunities. He cites the automobile industry as a good example. The car, a radical invention in its day, was a hot cause, but it was only through a social movement powered by car clubs that the automobile was seen as a solution to the problem of transportation and began to get social acceptance. In the opposite way, the business I was involved with in my Philips days, where we launched the original small digital hearing aids, the cochlear hearing aids, a very hot cause, very needed, but they were slow to get acceptance because of the lack of cool mobilization. We needed hot jazz and the belief in cool music to get acceptance amongst white audiences. Twenty years ago, there were 50 AAA-rated financial institutions. Today, there are less than six. And I think Pfizer and GE are probably coming off that list pretty shortly. A rating, a risk rating, is traditionally increasingly a vestigial trait. It's old-fashioned. Risk profiles change. How relatively risky are some of the opportunities we see? Risk profiles change. New ventures, new investors understand this. The recession is a great time to recalibrate risk and take the plunge. It is important to measure and manage the right things in a new company, particularly in the middle of a storm. There is a threat that we do not measure the right things, or more precisely, we should add to the dashboard another important dial that reads customer happiness. Enlightened companies will see happiness and well-being of customers as their ultimate purpose. This is no mean challenge. We might try and delight our customers, but what do we really know about their relationship with us? And what about our competitors? This is a far cry 
from a preoccupation with only the petrol, temperature and speed dials on the dashboard. Just cash and costs. Just like GDP is not a refined measure of economic expansion, missing out huge costs of pollution, commuting costs, etc., we must create a new dashboard for the new company. So here it is. A new model and a new dashboard. Effectively means a new kind of company. A take-share company. The contention is that in a downturn, we need to move from a defend market share company to a take-share company. We need to consider the behaviours we need to adopt to make this change. Understanding this attitude is effectively a call to arms. The new company must have a smell of revolution in its marketing approach to customers. It is bold with laser-like focus on competitors, which it's trying to kill. If the market's not growing, we're only going to grow by killing the enemy. These companies have a stylized culture. They embrace risk. They are predatory. Language is aggressive. Behavior is nonconformist. In a take-share company, compensation is not just about sales rewards. Winning is a company-wide prize. Speed is a major weapon. We have to be predators to be entrepreneurs particularly in the current climate. This responsibility lies fairly and squarely with the entrepreneur. Let me leave you with these few words by Theodore Roosevelt. Thank you very much.